0: I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy and I really believe in betterhelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $45 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's a professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot?
1: I would kind of feel anxious about through the whole day and um, you know I'd kind of go from meeting to meeting and project to project and just feel stressed and always like I was on fast forward it was like somebody was hitting a fast forward button on life and I just I felt like the walls were always closing in.
0: Welcome to The Depression Files where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, the host. I am excited. Tonight, we have Matthew Tesnier with me. Matthew is an author, a blogger, and a mental health advocate. Matthew, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Al.
0: So you have uh, a book that you've written all about kind of your journey and so forth, It sounds like uh, you have been battling, without a diagnosis, mental health for a long time.
1: I have. I think for most of my life, I thought I was just kind of an incessant worrier and would worry about different things and get stuff on my mind and worry about schoolwork as a child, worry about to-do lists and deadlines as an adult in the workplace, and I thought it was just a lot on my mind. And I don't think I ever really considered that there was more to it than that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I spent more than 30 years not really realizing that what I was going through was mental illness. It was, it was, I would say, uh, an educational ignorance on my part.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I, I think you gotta be gentle on yourself. I mean, that, that's a, <laughs> you were at a young age at that point. Can you put your finger on an age or a time when you think some things started to manifest?
1: When I was a kid, as far back as I can remember, really, uh, as far as my memories go, I remember being a little bit uneasy. Uh, but but there were definitely, I would say, a couple of precipitating events that uh, caused me to feel that way and taking swim lessons when I was a kid, and I talk a little bit about it in in my book. I had experiences with older kids where they would bully me and hold me under the water, and that made me not uh, naturally as a child would feel not want to go to swim lessons and be a little uneasy about being around other kids or, or older kids. Um, and then I had, you know, I, I think one of the things growing up as a boy that uh, I I haven't really heard very many people talk about is going into bathrooms in school and in middle school and sometimes even in elementary school. Just the bullying that happens in there, you know, it's a place that a lot of times the teacher's not looking um, when when you go in for a, maybe a bathroom break in a class or between classes, and there's a lot of bullying that goes on in there. And and I was the subject to that. And so those kinds of things. I I would say, definitely by the ages of eight and nine, I started to go through some of that bullying on the school bus. You know, a lot of the natural things that a lot of a lot of kids deal with. But um, I was kind of a quiet and shy kid, and I wasn't one to. Um, fight back. I wasn't one to uh, want to tell on people and, and cause more trouble. I was shy. I just kind of held it in. And I think that started a pattern that really went for many, many years, even into adulthood. So,
0: you at those times when you were getting bullied at school, you didn't share with anybody and you didn't share with your folks or teachers or friends?
1: I know my mom had an idea um, as to what was going on. Um, one of the things that I love that I was able to include in, in my new book is that uh, my mom wrote a, a journal of sorts of letters to me over the years. And I, she gifted that to me a couple of years ago. I'm, I believe it was my 32nd birthday. Uh, and it really is great because it gives me the insight to what she was seeing uh, as a mother, me go through at different points in my life. And she gave that to me about the time that I really started to, I guess, investigate my struggles and, and understand that I was going through something that was more than worry and was, was mental health. And so it became a great resource for me to go back and look at what she had said about what she observed in my life over the years. And she noticed in some of those entries that I was dealing with uneasiness, that I was worrisome, that I was really having a lot of issues tied to that worry. I've had a lot of stomach issues in my life. And, you know, growing up, my mom always told me those are tied to other things. Your head is tied to your stomach. The different different systems in your body are related. And so, you know, if you're worried about things, that can affect your head. It can affect your stomach. It all goes around. And so, um... I did. I think my mom had an idea as to some of the things I was going through. And I say um, I mentioned the journal because there was an entry in there where uh, reading it many years later, I kind of connected things. She said, you got off the school bus, um, you were upset and, you know, you wouldn't really say what was was going on. And then talking to you a little bit more, I was able to get out of you that a kid had picked on you. And so I think, you know, my mom probably was the closest one to me who knew that I was going through some things. And I think she tried to encourage me the best that she could. And that was in the nineties. I don't know that we necessarily keyed into some of the things that we were going through, that they were mental illness at that time, the way we do now in the 2010s.
0: Right. You know, you're not the first man at all who has talked about very loving parents that did what they knew best. Um, That's right. and didn't set any, but didn't set the kid up maybe with a counselor or mental health practitioner or anything, because like you said, she was doing the best she could. She tried to talk to you about it.
1: She did. And, and I mean, I had very present and very supportive parents. Um, you know, if, if you, a lot of times I think we, we think of our parents as kind of good cop, bad cop, you know, one might be tougher than the other one and the other one a little bit softer. Well, my dad was, was the tough guy. And mom was the kind of the softy, but they both were very supportive. And um, so I, you know, I lack nothing there. But, you know, I think she tried to find ways to encourage me, um, whether that be quotes. She she often I mean, we were a church going family growing up and um, our still faith is a huge part of, of our lives. And she would she would give me scriptures and try to encourage me that way. But you know I can't I can't say that um, she didn't necessarily have um, her finger on the right resources so much as I think I tried to downplay it a lot because I didn't want to make a big deal of it. Um, and I think that became a big thing for me going into adulthood. I tried to bury what I was going through. And I don't know if that was because I was a male. I thought I had to be tough. I had to just kind of fight through it. But I know there were other times in the journal that she shared with me of, of different entries over the years that she said she would press me on something and try to talk about it. And I would say, eh, it's no big deal. And I think that kind of indicates to me now, I just didn't want to make a big deal about it. That doesn't mean that I wasn't going through something that we should have talked about a little bit more. And if I talked about it a little bit more, maybe she could have connected me with what I needed. Right.
0: Right. Did you and have, I think we're guilty of
1: that as adults too.
0: Oh, absolutely. Do you have siblings?
1: I do not. I'm an only child.
0: Okay. And how about middle school, high school, similar type of situation going through school and were you doing all right grade wise?
1: Middle school was, I always refer to middle school as just the toughest time to go through. And so do both of my parents of having a middle school aged child. And I think, you know, it's an age at which pretty much I think all of our children, are, we're all uncomfortable at that age. We're, we're embarrassed of different things. We want to fit in. Some of us want to be cool. We don't, you know, we don't want our parents to embarrass us. Uh, it's just a tough age. But add on top of that, if you have any insecurities, and for me, I think I've always struggled with self-confidence. I've struggled with just uh, believing in myself and not worrying about what other people think of me. And that definitely was an issue during the middle school years among you know anything else that, that kids normally deal with at that age. But remarkably, I was I was very tough on myself. And so I expected myself more than anybody else to get good grades. So while worrying on one hand about just having to deal with people and and different what I understand now or social anxieties, I was also pressuring myself to get really good grades. And so I was always an A-B student. And that really came from just studying really hard and, and working really hard because I wasn't the kind that could just look at something, come in on a day of a test or, or, or something like that and, and ace it. I had to work really hard for my grades. So while I was kind of pushing myself from a mental standpoint to, to deal with whatever uneasinesses I had, I also was pushing myself to get good grades. And I think that led to me breaking down more from all that self-pressure as an adult.
0: Right. Well, I think that's pretty common amongst a lot of the men I speak with. And for me personally, absolutely, you know, just being really hard on myself. If somebody gives me a compliment, I'm quick to brush it off. If somebody says something negative, uh, I attribute it to me, you know, rather than maybe it had nothing to do with me, really. So I've been that way uh, as well. So you were able to get the good grades and stuff. Were you doing any kind of extracurriculars? And did you have a core of friends at all when you were in high school?
1: I did. I played, um, well, I played basketball growing up. I've always loved sports. And then in middle school and getting into high school, I did band. And so I did marching band and concert band. And a lot of my friendships revolved around that because I spent so much time doing it. Uh, And looking back now, and some of the people, uh, friends that I maintain into uh, in, into being an adult, uh, many years later, as they've read my book and they've they've learned for the first time, I've shared some of the things that I've dealt with mentally through my life. I, you know, I've told them, I, you know, I hope you're not mad at me or felt like I was holding something back from you. I didn't share this stuff with really anybody, but I had friends. I had I had good close friends, people who were supportive, but I think I always had that tug that. You're going through some really tough stuff. Um, you know, you're, you're nervous all the time. You feel this pressure, this weight on you. Um, I've described it many times the anxiety portion of it, um, which is one of the, the biggest things I battle, is, is just you know, kind of generalized anxiety disorder. It feels like a weight pushing down, it feels like somebody standing behind me saying, do it, do it all now and do it perfectly. You know, it's just that, that pressure, but you know, there's nobody there. That's my own voice telling me to do that. It's, it's, it's a crazy thing really, but I had great friends, but I did not, you know, share any of those things I was going through with them. They, you know, they knew the typical things, oh, you know, relationship troubles or class troubles or, um, you know, band challenges, things like that. But I I never shared any of my mental weight.
0: So nobody really probably recognized that you even needed support, and so they weren't going out of their way to to support you any more than a typical friendship.
1: That's ex- that's exactly right, and I think that's that's one of the biggest errors that I've made. That I think a lot of a lot of people make, and a lot of men certainly make, is when you when you act like everything's okay, you kind of have everybody fooled. Right. And you know, not necessarily trying to be deceptive, deceptive, but they think you're okay, and that's one of the major mistakes I made growing up, and even as I got into my twenties and and began into my thirties, was, you know, trying to act like everything was okay, not wanting to clue anybody in because um, you wanted everybody to think, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. There, you know, you didn't want to put anything that you were struggling with on display,
0: right? and.
1: Um I think that really I I think it has surprised people about me. Um, you know, being a good student, um, I think most people have have thought of me as a good coworker, somebody who's trustworthy. I I think it surprised them because I have kind of intentionally but unintentionally hid those struggles. And so as I've started to blog and post on social media and talk about my book and talking about my my challenges, I think that's really shocked people because I think people really thought, whoa, I thought, I thought he had it all together. And that's kind of been part of my message is that, you know, we all have something that we're dealing with, whether it's mental illness or something else. And so I think one, that's why we have to be kind to each other because we don't know what different people are going through, even people close to us. But, um, two, there, I don't think there, there are any people who are skating through life easy on easy streets. So, But I do. I think a lot of people thought I was, that that I had it all figured out.
0: Yeah, it's really, really common, and we hear it all the time on this show too, just men putting that mask on, right? Just gritting through it, being tough, wearing the mask, and getting through the day.
1: Yes, and a couple of years ago um, when I worked at a university, I was talking to a student, and it was right about the time I was starting to understand and confront my mental challenges a little more. And, and by talking about them, he shared about his too. And he compared it, um, just like you said, to a mask and he compared it kind of to a theater performance that you put your, you play a part. And, um, when you're around other people, you play that part. Then when you get by yourself, you take the mask off and you're actually yourself. And he introduced the idea to me and and it's always going to stick with me that, We need to leave the masks off and be ourselves all the time and if if more of us do that maybe we can be more comfortable in our own skin and um, understand each other a little bit better
0: absolutely i think that's a great suggestion so you mentioned some people being a little bit in shock when they read your blog and your book and so forth, because you seemed to have it all together. W- what were some other responses you had? Surprise? Did people want to want to help take care of you then, or inquire on your how you're doing these days? Or what were the, were the reactions like?
1: I've had I've had a lot of um, so far folks who've read it um, early in the in the month or so after release or that, um, you know, I'm stunned. uh, I'm shocked. Those kind of things. That's been a common reaction. Uh, Folks have showed a lot of concern, a lot of encouragement. Um, I, I think it's it's been interesting. The largest portion of feedback so far overall to the actual book of, of people seeing it that I know and don't know and reading it and responding to me and, and telling me, Hey, I've read it. And, and, and you know, you're going to be okay. And it's, it's good that you're trying to take charge of your health is uh, it's been women and I haven't got a lot of deep feedback overall, the largest percentage is from women and not from men. And I think that sometimes is indicative to, how men, uh, you know, they don't necessarily always talk about their feelings or about the mushy stuff or, or things like mental health in a lot of cases, uh, whereas women maybe are a little bit more um, willing to share their heart and speak their mind. Um, so that's kind of been the reaction but uh, to the book. But when I first started sharing on social media with, with people that I know and am connected with, you know, I want to tell you all something very important. Um, and I'm from the South, so I say you all. <laughs> um the the American South. We we love y'all. Um uh, both I guess both the people and the and the word. Um but uh I, I started to say, you know, I'm dealing with this. I, I'm I need to tell you honestly that as much as you might think that I've been okay, I haven't been okay. I felt a tremendous weight and pressure and it's anxiety and it's depression. Um it's OCD, it's it's a mixture of different things, and I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But I want you to know I'm going through it, but I am at the point where I've realized what I'm going through a little bit more. And that alone means I'm in a better place than I have been. And from that moment, I started getting reactions from people I had worked with before, um, people I'd gone to school with, guys who just like they didn't know about me, I had no idea about them that they were going through similar things. And I tell you, it's crazy. I had three or four guys within just a couple of days of one of my first posts message me on Facebook and say, you know, I had no idea. This is wild, but I've dealt with a lot of that stuff, too. And that was a really big moment for me and for them, because I think that alone was enough of us connecting and By me sharing, it made them feel like they could share with somebody and it opened up a whole new world. And uh, those couple of exchanges in those days after my first talking about it publicly, really on social media, are things I won't forget because that was kind of a turnaround moment.
0: That's fantastic. That is, uh, that's exactly what I've been saying for a long time. It's why I have the podcast. The more we share our stories, the more other people open up. And they're able to take care of themselves talk about it openly get the help they need and then help others
1: that's right I, and and, and when the more we talk about it hopefully the more we'll become comfortable um I, I my wife and i say all the time and she's a huge supporter of of me and me taking care of my health and and knowing i didn't do it for many years and i'm not just doing it for myself but i'm doing it for her and for for all of our family but we talk about all the time how uh, just spreading kindness is important and sometimes we might not be as openly kind as quickly to people we don't understand uh, people whose situation we don't understand and i think that applies to a lot of things but it applies to mental health and the more we talk about it the education piece what i felt like i was lacking for so many years becomes uh, something that we can use as a tool to try to you know if we can educate a little bit more maybe we can understand each other a little bit more and then we can be kind to each other and, and realize what we're going through and and hopefully it can only get better from there
0: yeah absolutely you know, one of the quotes that I share at times you made me think of, and I wanted to mention it earlier when you were talking about kindness and you mentioned this very specific point that we don't know people's story, right? We don't know what's going on in their life. And the quote just says, you may know their name, but you don't know their story. Right. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to remember. And I try to remember that, you know, if, if I deal with somebody who's angry at work or angry when I go to buy a coffee, you know, at a coffee shop, maybe they're having a rough day. Maybe they have something really traumatic going on in their life and they're just getting by. So I always try to remember that and try to treat everybody with kindness.
1: That's that's a very good way to go about life. I, I don't remember if it's Maya Angelou or, or someone else, but I, I do always remember the quote and it may be shared by several people now, but I, I think about it all the time. Uh, it's It goes something like people will never uh, – people won't remember what you said. People won't remember what you did. But people will always remember how you made, made them feel. feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I've held on to, not just the quote, but that in my life. I think how um, – whether it be swimming pool bullies or – school bathroom bullies or, you know, workplace bullies, because I think we under, undersell how much bullying sometimes goes on among adults even. And it may look a little different or feel a little different, but, um, you know, I think that happens a lot. And so I think the different things that I've gone through with people that have taken maybe my natural feeling of being uneasy, um, just that, that kind of temperament and struggles with self-confidence and kind of, um, added to that, I remember how they made me feel. And so, you know, my goal a lot of times is to turn that around and make people feel good about themselves and to highlight the things that they do well. And so I just, I love that quote because I think that that in one way kind of sums up how we should approach life.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, You, uh, you end up in the business world. Well, not necessarily business, but you, uh, you became a journalist, right? A reporter and an editor. Um, and at that point, was there ever an official diagnosis? Tell us about when you finally decided there is a serious issue here, a mental illness. When did you reach out for help and what did that look like?
1: I I did. I went into journalism. I spent about ten years uh, in print journalism uh, as a reporter and then as an editor, um, working you know a lot of hours, always kind of mentally being on duty um, with with breaking news and things like that. Um, you know it weighed on me, and I, I knew that. I I just I think thought, well I'm I'm I worry and I'm tired and I have a lot going on and isn't that is doesn't everybody. Um, So I didn't think too much about that. I got out of that. I went into um, other forms of communications and uh, it was really it was more than 10 years after I got out of my bachelor's degree program and graduating from college with an undergrad degree. Um, and I was working in communications that um, the environment where I was working became kind of contentious and, and difficult around me. My wife and I had had some um, challenges uh, in our church life at that time, and I had also I been doing volunteering, and that had, had been taken up a good bit of my time. And we had some I had some personal relationships with family and different things that that were going through some tough times. And so kind of it's like a lot of us, but all these things kind of were weighing on me at one time. And no, at that point, I still I didn't have any kind of diagnosis. I really had not connected my feelings of of um, being frantic and, and frustration and just really really struggling with just the day to day. And, and I would kind of feel anxious about through the whole day. And, um, you know, I'd kind of go from meeting to meeting and project to project and just feel stressed. And always like I was on the, on fast forward, it was like somebody was hitting a fast forward button on life. I felt like I had to run from one thing to the other. And so I'd get to the end of the day and I'd be exhausted from, from different things. And I would start – I would kind of swing the other direction, and it's kind of the difference between depression and anxiety that um, – you know. my motor was running really high. I felt like I was on fast forward when I was feeling anxious throughout the day, and then I'd get to the end of the day, and I'd be tired. I'd start thinking about the next day, and I'd kind of sink into that depression low, and it was almost like I was at slow speed and I describe it um, in my book kind of as like being in uh, the trash compactor in the Death Star in Star Wars A New Hope, where the walls are closing in. And I just, I felt like the walls were always closing in. I always had a deadline or something I had to do. And I was just, I just couldn't keep up with it all. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any feeling that, oh, I've got more to do than anybody else. I just knew this is more than I can handle. And so between personal and, um, you know, faith challenges with with, with church and, um, you know, professional challenges, all of that was really getting to me. And I think somewhere in there, uh, and this was a couple of years ago my my wife could really see that. And I think it was starting to affect her too, just seeing how I was always either I was either running on frantic or I was running on slow speed. And, you know, I was either I felt like I was running for my life or I was just so low that I didn't really feel like doing anything. And it kind of came to a point where we talked about it all the time. And eventually I realized I need to make some changes. And so um, at that time, I actually kind of pulled out of everything. You know, I stopped doing the volunteer work I was doing. We'd had some changes in our church life at the time. And so that was kind of on hiatus. I put everything professionally on hiatus and I just kind of almost stopped everything and trying to desperately, you know, stop feeling like I was running all the time from thing to thing and not able to keep up and just kind of feeling crazed with that. And so I took some time away from almost everything in life except for, you know, seeing the essential members of my family and, of course, my wife on a day-to-day basis. And I just kind of kind of started camping out. I was almost, as I say in my book, a modern hermit. I mean, I just – I know my mom thought, I think at that time, you know, you're just – you need to get out and get some sunshine and see some people. But for me, I just could feel that I need to really um, slow myself down here and kind of get back to center
0: So had you quit your job as well?
1: I did at that time. I I quit, quit working, um, altogether. And, you know, I felt that pressure, pressure with that as a man as well. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, supposed to be a breadwinner, supposed to be, you know, and you know, women are just as capable as men, but we still, I think even, even if nobody else is putting that pressure on us, I think we're still feeling that we've got to go out and we've got to support and provide And, And my wife and I don't have kids at this point. Um, but at the same time, you know, you still feel those kind of pressures. And so in, in doing that, I, I took some time kind of to myself, um, like I said, trying to kind of reset. And I think I still was able to see this has helped, but I need to do something more. Um, How and long I had,
0: of a time was it?
1: Um, let's see. Bef- before I stopped working, I had tried counseling and I'd kind of had for myself, I really felt like unsuccessful results. I just didn't feel like I was getting what I needed out of it. And I think I didn't, I I think now I didn't find the right counselor at that time. And that's something that I still really need to work on more is getting, I think, I think counseling would still help me. I'm in a better place, but I still think that would be very helpful for me at this point. Uh, Sometimes when
0: we're a little healthier is actually a great time to, to be able to work through some of those issues with a therapist.
1: That's good to hear. I think I would probably have, um, better conversation on my end now than I would have a couple of years ago. Right. right. Um, I, I don't know that I would have been receptive to anything. And, you know, so I could have been even a, a little bit in the way of myself and counseling, but yeah. so I, so I tried that, but, um, it was probably about, six months or so after I had stopped working that I had decided at the encouragement of my mom and of my wife that I need to, okay, if if counseling wasn't exactly the route that was going right then I need to at least go talk to my, um, primary care doctor, my family doctor about this. Okay. Um, and just, so just, Tell a medical professional a little bit of what I'm going through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into the the medical doctor, I'm curious, six months at home with no job and you kind of cut all ties and you described it as a hermit. What was a typical day like?
1: Well, I, I've always been one to write and do a lot of reflection and do a lot of reading. And so, you know, I still did those things. Um, and it was during that time that I kind of started to find baking as my therapy, Um, I've always been a cook at home. I mean, I love cooking. Um, my wife and I do a food blog, um, that has, has been, you know, a a great source of joy for both of us ever since we got married. Um, but in having that extra time on my hands, you know, I had, I I don't know exactly what pointed me to baking, but I I talk about it a little bit in the book that, you know, there was a day that I had just kind of decided I'm going to make a pie today. And so, you know, I'm going to do it from scratch. And so I got a recipe and I made my crust, I made my filling and I made a chest pie. And so I did stuff like that and I got a lot of therapy out of that. And I remember that first one that I made wasn't perfect, but I thought, you know, we did this food blog. I love cooking. There's something, there's something to this for me. There's, there's therapy to this. I, I don't know what it's going to lead to, and I still don't exactly know what it's going to lead to. Um, but I have this opportunity to do this right now, and that's what I'm going to do. And so, really, those six months, it was things like writing. I did some personal reflection retreats. Um, I went to the mountains. I went to the beach, um, and just kind of took some time to get. Since I had the time to go out of my routine and. Again, try to get myself back to center.
0: That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you were certainly trying the best you could to work on yourself. Um, rather than and- It wasn't like you were just slouching on the couch, eating all day, watching TV, and, and then hitting the hay at night. You were really trying to do things that would support your mental health.
1: No, and I'm glad you – I'm really glad you say it that way because one of the other big things that became a part of my life during that point, when when I was in journalism and um, at other points in my young career, you know, I really did. I did a terrible job taking care of myself. I didn't do a lot of exercise. I ate a really horrible diet, and so I'd packed on a lot of pounds since college, and at one time I was up to 325 pounds. And I'm a six foot four guy, so I spread it out a little bit more than if I was shorter. <laughs> and and again, like my mental challenges, a lot of people didn't know that I weighed that much. They wouldn't have guessed because I did. I spread it out on a big frame. But I, my mental health and my physical health were kind of in bad shape together. Right. And so during that time, I started walking. And I would walk you know, a couple miles in the morning, a couple miles at night. And I changed my diet. I, I didn't sit on the couch and just, um, you know, eat junk food all day and watch TV or binge binge Netflix or Hulu or something like that. Um, you know, I started eating healthier foods. I, I cut a lot of the sugar out of my diet. I stopped drinking. We love sweet tea here in the South. That has always been my vice as far as, you know, liquids. I'm not a big soda guy or anything like that, but I cut the, t- the sugar out of my tea did the unthinkable for a Southerner and started drinking unsweet tea, um, which now I I like just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, You just get
0: shunned by all your neighbors.
1: uh, Yeah, (laughs) I get comments quite often, you know, and and I still, to be honest, I have a hard time sometimes paying for unsweet tea because I think, (laughs) how do I, how do I, you know, I, I, aren't I just paying for the sugar, which a lot of times the sweet tea is almost like sugar water. Um, My wife (laughs) likes to talk about how she likes a sweet tea that tastes like tea. Um, And so, You know, I cut that out, I cut the sugar out of my coffee, and I started walking a lot, and eventually, over. I don't know, a little more than a year. I lost uh, about 80, 90 pounds. Wow, and, that is um, fantastic. So, yeah, I went from three twenty-five to two forty-five, and at one time I actually dipped a little bit lower than that. And you know, started to, like I said earlier, I've had stomach problems my whole life, and so I encountered a little bit of issue there. I think maybe my body was battling back at me, and um, you know, saying, "Whoa, don't lose too much too quickly." But it it, it was a healthy way, I think, to lose to lose weight. Oh, I changed it my diet. Sounds like it. And, and it was all walking. I mean, I didn't, I I do a little jogging and running now, but I still mostly walk to be easy on my joints, um, my knees and and ankles and stuff. So, you know, that became a big part too, along with the writing, the retreats, the, the baking and things like that, doing things for therapy. I tried to change my physical health. And then when I finally did go to the doctor, what do you know? That was one of the first things that I was told was, you've done good by doing that because physical exercise is good for your brain and I loved hearing that because that's one of the things I'd made one of my, you know, main goals.
0: So this was going to the GP, right? Your family doctor. That's right. And this was, you had been six months, you've been uh, eating better, making better food, doing a hobby, which I think is important too, the the food piece, uh, exercising. What was it that made you go to see the GP?
1: Uh, encouragement from uh, my wife and mom. I mean, both of both of them had had my mom had told me for a while. And, um, you know, I definitely have to say and and I talk about it in my book. So it's it's definitely not an an off limits kind of topic. I've had definitely a history of struggles with things like anxiety and depression in my family. And I don't know that we've always called it that. Um, But looking back at at grandparents and different people, um, my mom included, you know, there's been a history of worry that's been a little bit more than just worry. And so my mom, I think, had someone tell her one time, you know, if, if you need something to help you manage this, this uneasiness there's nothing wrong if you need a medication to do that. And so my mom had told me already, if the same thing, if you need something to help you manage that, you know, I'm a guy and I talk about all the time, men don't like going to the doctor and they don't like taking medication. Right. Um, that I see that over and over and over again of, of men at all ages. And as we get older, I think we like it even less. And there's good reason for that. We have more things that we're, you know, going to get checked. But, yeah. They start poking um,
0: and prodding you everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there is, there's good reason for that, um, that we, that we don't love that. But she said, you know, if you need, if you need a little pill, it's just a little pill and you don't need to worry about that. And it's better that you try something, to take care of yourself then then just be defiant and not and so you know my wife is always encouraging she encouraged me that if i needed to stop working and take care of my health that's fine you know right. we live a pretty simple lifestyle we don't have children at this point you know that's that's i, I can't say that that method of trying to help myself would work for every man out there right but it's certainly been kind of part of my set of ingredients and i think we all have to find that set and so then going to the doctor and starting to take medication um so was, was that your goal that other ingredient
0: was that your goal like you were going to the gp specifically <sighs> to say i think i need medicine
1: I think it partially was. Um, I think I, I think from talking to my mom and, and wife and and you know knowing you know there's a chance that maybe there's a medication that can help you. I think that was definitely a goal. But I I also think I needed to kind of hear what kind of feedback I would get when I told, you know I had never mentioned that to a general practitioner or anything before. I never mentioned that to a family doctor. Hey, and by that time I think I had in my mind figured out, okay, I've done enough research. I, I understand. I, I think this is anxiety. It's a combination of that and depression. I can definitely see where I'm OCD about different things. Um, you know, and just, and, and in that it's ch- checking locks, checking to see the stoves off, just, just, you know, making sure my wallet's in the plate, you know, just little obsessive habits that I've had. Um, but, I think I wanted to kind of introduce, I think these are the things I'm struggling with and kind of talk through those things with the doctor and, you know, see what the reaction was to that. And, and I guess I was looking for hopefully help in a medication, but also uh, a little bit of confirmation for maybe what I would call a self-diagnosis.
0: Right, right. So tell us about that first appointment.
1: Well, I, I, I didn't want to go. And I, I remember making it, of course, an appointment several weeks ahead of time and You know, I kept thinking as it got near, I'm going to try to talk myself out of this um, because I, I just. As much as I want to go, as much as I want to help myself, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to get into this conversation. You know, it's kind of the same feeling of why I didn't talk about it with other people over the years. I just, I, I wanted to bury it. Not that I wanted to hurt myself, but I, it's an uncomfortable topic. It's, it's tough to talk about with other people. But, but I went and I had the conversation. I, I, I remember even before the doctor came in, I talked about it a little bit with the nurse. You know, a lot of times you get a question of what, what are we seeing you for? today? Even if it's just a general, you know, six months or year appointment or something like that, what are you in for? And I remember starting that conversation and saying, I've been really struggling with um, mental challenges and, and uh, feeling a weight uh, about everything. And I, I think it's anxiety and depression and OCD. And, and, you know, there may be some other, other personality, um, quirks in there that, that I need to talk about with the doctor. And so, um, of course that progressed to me sitting there by myself in the waiting room a little bit, as we're all familiar with doing from going to the doctor. And that gave me more time to be a little uneasy, but the doctor came in and we talked through it. And, um, I I really did get the confirmation I was looking for. I, I heard, yeah, um, I think from the things that you're saying, that's what you're dealing with. You're doing a really good job um, by at least realizing that you're going through uh, these frantic feelings and then these low feelings. There is something more to it than just worry. Um, You're doing a good job by trying to take care of your physical health. So those are good things. And by the end of the conversation, she did recommend Lexapro that I go on. And so I've been taking that ever since. And I guess that's been about a year and a half now.
0: Okay. And what was that like? Did you have any kind of side effects right off the bat? And did you have to go back and get them adjusted? What was that experience like taking a medication for the first time?
1: And I was worried about that because I've not taken a lot of medications in my life. I've had, um, you know, I've had asthma and allergies. And so, you know, I've done some things related to that, but I've never really been on much of any prescription medication. And so coming off of losing weight, I, that was one of my concerns. Is this going to make me put on weight? Am I going to like undo a lot of that hard work that I've done to try to get myself physically healthier? And then I also worried about my stomach. You know, I've always had a lot of uh, kind of a weak stomach. And I, it's it's I've always said ironic as much as I love food. I've had a weak stomach and I've I've had a hard time with that. Um, and that's one of the things that as is I've been more nervous. My stomach's been more upset. Um, As my stomach's been more upset, I've been more nervous, and I think I've thought of that as kind of being something that women deal with and, and that men don't, but as I've talked a little more openly about it. I realize it's, that's not necessarily the case, but I was worried about those two things most of all. But I started taking it. Um, I started out at a ten milligram, uh, and then I moved up to a twenty, actually, because things were going well. Um, after a follow-up appointment, maybe maybe six weeks later, I didn't really have any complications. I was very lucky. Um, I was told that there could be complications, at the very least, that I could be a little drowsy, and you know, I might, I might feel a little bit different just from the medication getting into my system. But I didn't have any bad side effects from taking that. And that was a pleasant surprise because I was very worried about that.
0: And uh, do you have a, a game plan? Like, have you ever thought like, maybe this is time to wean off? Or do you have kind of thoughts on that or a plan? And do you go back and check in with your GP once in a while about the meds?
1: I do um, and at first, uh, I believe I went back every six months and after about a year, that medication had you know done well enough for me that I was told that you know, I could decide from that point on that if, if I wanted to come in every six months or if I wanted to come in yearly, like, like I, um, like I could do at that point, I could, I have not, that's, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought at this point about, you know, maybe weaning off the medicine or, um, you know, stepping it down a little bit. I think from my perspective, the, the, the adjustments that I've made in my life, in addition to adding that medication have made, a good enough adjustment to how I felt and my outlook about things that um, I haven't really got to that next step yet of thinking, what am I going to do next with that?
0: Well, and that's a, you know, a conversation eventually that you would most likely engage in with your doctor and your wife. maybe. Definitely. But I, I always tell people, you know, if you're on meds, taking meds, thinking about weaning, just make sure you keep your doctor in the loop and you talk about the plan. Like you would not want to cut out, cold turkey, make that decision on your end, and then you could have complications, you know, stopping cold turkey rather than having a plan with the doctor on how you need to wean off of a particular med?
1: I definitely think so. And and I will say when I started taking Lexapro, my wife noticed a huge difference. Um, you know, I, I think... Immediately,
0: as, would you say? It,
1: Pretty close. I mean, you know, not necessarily the day of, but um, within a couple of weeks, she okay. was she was able to tell a difference that I was a little calmer, you know, not as not as easily excitable about um, the kinds of things that that we typically deal with in life. For instance, for me, I always have a hard time kind of handling multiple challenges at once, not just like multitasking intentionally, but like, say we have a problem with a car and we have a problem with something technology wise and we have a health problem and we have an unexpected bill. You know, you just get these different things that kind of stack up in life. When, when I had kind of that spiral of a couple of things that were presenting themselves as challenges, that's when I would just kind of feel just frantic about okay what i do i have too many things sitting there it's almost like a queue of assignments like i've got to clear these out and when they start popping in faster than you can clear them out and they stack up even if it's just simple stuff that we all go through in life i had a hard time handling that
0: oh my god i remember that feeling too and and even the smallest thing i remember my boss would be like hey can you do this and it essentially involved like one call and yeah. I, I, and if to me, it felt like a mountain, like another thing. Like, I yeah. mean, I luckily, I mean, I was wearing the mask at the time and he didn't see that. But inside, I was freaking out just about a simple add on that normally had I been mentally healthy. I wouldn't have even thought twice about it.
1: I can totally identify with that. I think you put that perspective very well. Um, that, that happens a lot of times, I think in the workplace with, with emails, I, you know, emails can pile up so quickly and it might not be that one email that comes through that is really the most difficult thing on your plate. It's just the fact that it follows about five or six other things that you're already juggling. Right, And it can be something really small, a small request from someone that really puts you over the top. And I really, um, I've read a lot of different books that have either been fiction or nonfiction takes on anxiety, and um, I definitely, I I really love John Green's Turtles All the Way Down. Uh, It's kind of a teenage female's perspective, uh, written by a male. Uh, about dealing with mental illness and, and and the anxiety, but it talks about the spirals we go through, and I've I've struggled with that, um, just spiraling downward, you know, the more adversity, even if it's small stuff, and I think when I started to take Lexapro and used, you know, medication in addition to trying to kind of simplify other things in my life, that started to make a big difference that when things started to stack up a little bit, I didn't get as concerned, as worried, as, you know, freaked out as quickly as I had before. And that would be, I think, one of my main concerns if I ever tried to come off alexapro that I would, would definitely want to talk about with my doctor how to do that if that was ever at a point to test that. You know, I don't want to go right back to feeling that way again, because that was tough. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I like how you mentioned that in addition to the medicine, you've made significant life changes that are helping your mental health. So, I mean, I think that's really important. I always talk about it being a multi-pronged approach, you know, utilizing whatever's in your toolbox to maintain your mental health. And I think I worry a little bit from when I hear people, you know, who have decided to take a medication and that's it, and they aren't really thinking about other implications and what other factors may be impacting their mental health. Uh, And I think my personal thought is when people talk about Once you have a depressive episode, you're more likely to have a second and after a second, you're more likely to have a third. I think that's oftentimes people who do one thing, like take one pill and then maybe stop a year or two years later. And then sure enough, the depression comes again. Well, they didn't look at the rest of their life and make any other kinds of life changes or modifications and things were just how they were. And it comes right back.
1: I could see how that could easily happen. And, and I'm sure that when I started making changes in my life, I, I didn't – just like talking about my anxiety, depression, and, and challenges to begin with, I didn't announce it to the world. Well, I'm doing this because of this. I'm doing this because of this. I'm doing this because of this. I kind of made those changes myself and in private, but I did realize that I need to make some pretty um, – pretty sweeping changes to different areas of my life. And I think that's, that's a very important thing to say that, um, coming from somebody that I considered myself to, um, you know, be very capable of doing, uh, Really, anything I put my mind to in life, but at the same time, I had self-confidence issues. But I think from the outside, people looked at me like, uh, there's nothing wrong with you. So I, I'm sure when I started making these different changes in my life, people were like, whoa, you know, this hey, it's not even the same person now. And, and so I've struggled with thinking that other people might think that about me. OK, he's changing his career. He is changing the way he looks. He's changing uh, what he's eating. He's talking about taking medication. He's saying that he has these things that he's battling. But I do, I I think it's a great point. If I just did one of those things, I would not be in a better place than I was a couple of years ago. And medicine alone would definitely not have got me there. The medicine on top of other things is, is really the reason for why I've been able to kind of steadily improve. And it it really is, it's a daily battle. I think anybody that deals with mental illness knows that and feels that all too well. But I think anybody who maybe doesn't deal with a mental illness uh, needs to understand that just because you've made changes or just because you're having a good day or you're taking medicine or you're changing things in your life to try to make yourself better. its I've seen over and over again, it's not like a flu. You don't, you know, take Tamiflu and uh, have bed rest for a week or so, and then get, get over it. And it's all gone. Um, it's a, it's a constant battle that you have to keep working at. And, you know, in a way, I think that's a metaphor for life. We have to keep coming back day after day to kind of chip away at anything we're doing. And mental illness is certainly that way. And I still have things that I need to do. I mentioned earlier, I, I still think there's some benefit to counseling for me. My wife and I have talked about that. Um, there's some support groups out there and, Um, I think, you know, there are things there that I can still take advantage of. So while I've done a lot of different stuff, I still have a lot of stuff I want to do.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you've mentioned tidbits here and there about your book, but I'd love to hear more. So your book that you authored is Eating Me Alive, How Food, Faith and Family Helped Me Fight Fear and Find Hope. Correct?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So tell us about the book.
1: It is uh, – the subhead, I think, is um, – the subtitle of the book is, is really a good indicator of kind of the scope of the book. And the, the main title, Eating Me Alive, is kind of a double, uh, a double meaning. Um, you know, anxiety and depression were kind of eating me alive. And going along with that, uh, I, I think often about how people talk about self-medicating – um, when they deal with mental illness. Um, and I didn't actually know what that meant. I had heard that phrase. I didn't really know what that meant until, um, I started listening to other people talk about their mental illness journeys and realizing, okay, self-medicate often means that you're, you know, using alcohol or different other substances to, to deal with what you're battling. Well, I never did that. Alcohol's never been an issue for me. Stress eating, overeating, binging, uh, has been, um, and, you know, that dealing with stress by eating bad food and a lot of bad food is kind of what my self-medication was. And so by turning that around, and like we talked about earlier, um, I started eating healthier. Um, I started uh, baking and doing different things to to use food to help me um, be more alive and and to live a better life. And so that's the other flip side of it is is eating me alive. And so. Food is one big piece of um, the therapy that I have uh, used to, to find hope again in my life from, from my battles. Faith is always a big piece of it. I mentioned growing up in a Christian home, uh, and, and I you know, I am a big believer, and that, I, I, that is a huge thing for me. And I understand that is not something necessarily that everyone rests in, but that's a huge piece for me. So I talk about that in the book, and then the family piece is a huge element for me. I don't have a huge family. I, I, oddly, I'm an only child, my mom is an only child, and my father is an only child. So we have a really small family tree, but I was I was close to some of my grandparents, and through uh, stories and, and family uh, relics and treasures I have of other grandparents, family's always been a big thing for me, especially as I've gotten older. So as I go through the book, I tie food and faith and family together, and a lot of the different chapters talk about the role that a close-to-me family member has played um, in my journey. Um, And in some cases, like with my grandmother on my mom's side, that is her dealing with anxiety herself and then eventually dealing with Alzheimer's and kind of the um, the hope and the education I've been able to glean from seeing her go through her life. Uh, In other cases, it's the calm that is that was my grandpa um, I didn't see any anxiety in him. And I talk a little bit about, um, you know, how all the different family members uh, and then the hobbies and the things that mean a lot to me is therapy and, and different pieces of my life fit together to help me find hope. And so I kind of weave all of that around my story of dealing with bullying and being a male and kind of pulling out of some of the responsibilities that we feel like we have to do to take the time to take care of myself. And I do all of that while also kind of tipping my cap at the family members that have really kind of sustained me and helped me get through my darkest days.
0: It sounds phenomenal. I love how you talk about the extended family as well, um, because just from this interview with you, I can tell your parents, your mom in particular, and your wife have been such a huge support system for you. And I think that's an important piece too, that people need to understand that it's, it's really important to try to build that type of support system. And if you aren't lucky enough to have it with a direct family, then maybe it is going to a clergy member, maybe it is a support group, maybe it is a doctor, but to create this type of support um, around you is really important. And it sounds like you had a lot
1: of that. I have and, and I've been very blessed and very lucky in that way because, you know, I, I know that, that my circle and my support group is not what everybody has. You know, I say often with mental mental illness and, and now that I talk more freely and openly about, about the things that I've dealt with, you know, we all have we all have different needs and we all have uh different kinds of therapy that we'll find that are helpful but we really have we can't do it by ourselves there's there's and I think for myself I held on to it too long by myself I don't know if I was just stubborn if I was embarrassed
0: nearly 30 um, years it sounds like
1: huh? yeah i mean i, I held on wow. to it for so long and yeah and i think you know i I am somebody who had a good home growing up. Then when I grew up, you know, I I have a great wife. And so I like to say now, you know, I consider that if I, somebody who I think I'm incredibly blessed and I have not had the hardest road in life, uh, there are people who have gone through much harder things than I have. If I can deal with mental illness then there are a lot of people who can deal with mental illness and right. so you know I think that it comes back to that whole thing again that just because we see someone we we might not know their story and so, again, by sharing our stories, that's that's hugely important. But I have I've been very lucky, and by talking about the family support system I've had around me and my faith support system, um, you know, that's been been good for me. And I know that not everybody has that, but I do think there's somebody that anybody can talk to. Right. Um, and I think the more we talk about it, like you said, whether it's clergy, a therapist, you know, there's there's some way of of you know, connecting, and I've I've found a very comforting and supportive um, group of uh, of a mental health community on Twitter even. Absolutely. Um, and and I've been blown away how many um, folks I've connected with who live in the UK and are willing to talk about mental health. That's been very interesting for me. I think I've connected with just as many people who live in the UK dealing with different mental illnesses as I have in the United States.
0: I noticed that as well. And in fact, I just feel like they're much further ahead when it comes to talking about it, being open about it, providing support for it.
1: I definitely think so. I've, I've really gotten that impression from the more time I've spent interacting with different folks and, and sometimes just observing and, and just seeing the number of, of men and women who uh, are from all walks of life who are, who are talking about their different mental illnesses and you know I, I do do connect with a lot of folks that live in the United States but it, it has it's it's been kind of eye-opening for me and, and I would definitely say I think there's something about the UK process system the way they um, talk about mental illnesses or address them or a little bit of both that is is somewhere that we need to get as uh, as the US yeah
0: absolutely. So uh, the other piece I wanted to ask you about was, in addition to being a published author, you also have two different blogs, correct? You have one called Man Down and one called Foodie Score.
1: That's right. Tell us about Um, the blogs. Well, uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Foodie Score is a... Um, uh, it's a food lover's paradise. Uh, that's what I would describe it as, but it's, it's a food blog and it's kind of two different, um, two different sections. There's restaurants and then there's recipes and my wife and I just enjoy food. We, we love good food and we love cooking. Um, uh, most of the week we cook at home and I do a lot of the cooking. And and again, that's a big therapy and something I really enjoy. Um, And so I enjoy the process. And when we have good recipes, we share those. We also talk about restaurants we go to. And it it mostly focuses on the American South, um, with that being where our roots are. And I would say the food we know best. But it does does kind of move into different areas of the United States from our travels from time to time, and so um, we like to talk about it being a um, positive place for food because there's there are plenty of negative reviews that you can go read on Yelp and TripAdvisor and, and other major sites, and we use those as well. But we don't share anything on Foodie Score that's a negative review. We we love something we put it there because we want to share it with somebody else and say we made this or we went and got this, we want you to go get it too.
0: That's awesome. Do you have anything on that website, just out of curiosity, that talks about how you utilized food in an unhealthy way until you realized it and then now you utilize food in a really healthy way um, as far as your mental health goes and uh, do you share that at all with any kind of concerns that Uh, people may who are unhealthily um, seeking out food websites may land on your
1: page. That's a great question, and I would say yes, a little bit. But it's something that we definitely should explore more. And now that I've released a book talking about my mental health, but also kind of how physical health and um, eating impacts that, I think there's a lot of room to do a lot more of that Um, early. Last year, uh, 2018, uh, one of the first posts, if not the first post that we did for the year was, um, I think it was five five healthy foods, um, something like that, five affordable healthy foods. And, you know, we live in the South. We're known for a lot of fried food. We're known for things that aren't necessarily good for you. And so, you know, we have plenty that we share that is, you know, they're, they're guilty pleasures, they're, you know, they're cheeseburgers or they're other things that we love. But that was, I think, the first time as I was going through my own kind of um, health changes that I, I really thought, okay, now it's time to have a few things on there that are healthy and point toward that kind of end of the spectrum, yeah, there are all these great things that are, you know, amazing uh, foodie scores, as, as we call them, you know, kind of the, the food that a foodie scores is where the name comes from. But, you know, so I listed a couple of those foods and it was simple things like um, tuna and eggs and spinach right. and yogurt and, you know, just some of those, kind, and, and oats. And yeah. I, I by doing that, then I started doing a couple of other Um, post about recipes, there were a couple of vegan options, a couple of um, tacos that we've done that um, some of my wife's coworkers and other folks we know really like those posts because either they have someone in their family who's vegan or they like to watch their calories or, you know, various different reasons. They may not be tied to mental health, but they are definitely tied to physical health and wanting something a little healthier. So we have started to do a little bit more of that. And then with having that blog and having a food connection with my book, I really kind of, I think, for the first time talked about um, how I had been an unhealthy eater and how that was a big part of my turnaround in a post that kind of introduced that in addition to talking about my
0: book. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I just think you have really made some significant changes around food. And I completely understand, you know, having the, the guilty pleasures of of food to indulge in on there as well but I think your story is so powerful and so for people to realize that you're not just this food junkie and that's all you do and that's why you have this blog but like you're really conscious and aware about it
1: is just that's right a, an
0: important piece I think to be able to share. and I
1: do I do talk about balance quite a bit that you know we we as at, from a healthy standpoint but also it's it's a financial thing I mean you know, we we both like to live as simply as possible, and uh, you know we're aware of you know how much money you can spend and how many calories you can consume if you eat out all the time. Right. And when I worked in journalism, you know I, I was at, at most of that time I was you know a bachelor. I was living by myself it was either fast food or it was something quick I could make at home with no regard to my health whatsoever. It was just whatever tasted good, got me full and would feed me. And so, you know, talking about the balance that's important, We, we only eat out at a restaurant maybe a time or two a week. And so, you know, a lot of the meals that we make at home are an opportunity to balance. We can't necessarily control other than what we order on the menu, everything that goes into a plate At a restaurant, but we can at home, and we can decide how we go about that. So balance has been something that I've started to talk about a little bit more. But it, it definitely, I think, as as time goes on, as I've talked more about my health, it, it is a great opportunity to be a platform for talking about health in general.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tell us about your second blog, the other blog. Uh, I don't know if it's the first or the second blog, but it it was the second one. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was the second one I started. And um, that was uh, I started um, a couple of years ago when I started making changes to my life. And it also is is kind of a, a play on words of you know the phrase man up. You need to man up. Well, um, you know we hear either in a military connotation or others you know the phrase man down, and that's kind of how I felt like. Um, I felt like I was was a man down, and um, I wanted people to know just from that title. Um, that 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 was how I felt that men can get down Um, It has kind of a depressed depression connotation Um, and then I wanted to just use that kind of as a jumping off point a talking piece to to discuss different topics related to mental illness and that has been things like what's the difference between mental illness and mental health and you know for me the answer is we all have a mental health that we can work on maybe not all of us have a mental illness. Um, you know, what is anxiety? What does depression feel like? Um, you know, different, different men or different celebrities that, that have talked about their mental illness. And so it's a variety of topics. And one of the big challenges that I saw when I started the Man Down blog was I want to talk about these topics. But at that time, I already knew um, I was working on a book and I did My challenge was how do I share things on a free blog that don't take away from writing a book that I'm going to put on sale. I don't want to, you know, cross cross-pollinate too much between the two of those where if somebody reads it on the blog, why would they need to read the book? Right. And I was pretty pretty quickly able to figure out there's so many topics I can talk about related to mental illness that I, I have so many that I can pick from. And I can kind of pepper a little bit of my personal experiences in there on the blog and use that as an awareness piece. But the, I decided pretty early the most personal stories of my life and the things I've gone through, whether that be bullies or, or stomach struggles or you know just trying to deal with all the things that I felt like were flying at me, those personal stories will go in the book. And um, that was a way that I kind of tried to divide the two.
0: Right. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, where can people go to find your blogs? Where can people go to find your book?
1: That, that's a great question. I appreciate the opportunity to share that. Um, the blogs are um, simply foodie score, F O O D I E S C O R E, dot blog. Uh, and then the other one is a little more complicated. It's a longer address. It's themandown, dot com. And um, my book, Eating Me Alive, is available on Amazon now. I'm, I'm working on some other options for local bookstores and things like that. But Amazon, if you've got Prime, um, will get it to you the quickest way.
0: Awesome. I will make sure all of those are in the show notes as well. And that sounds great so before we wrap up, I would love to hear from you Matthew any piece of advice suggestions uh, that you may offer a man or or anybody who is right now listening and struggling with their mental health
1: absolutely don't hold it in that was the worst mistake that I made um you know I'm lucky that I had the support system in place that I did, that I had people like my mom and then then my wife come into my life, who you know were not going to just you know let me continue to spiral downward and get into a worse place. And if I had not had that and and my faith, I mean that was a big piece. I I've always felt God's presence with me, and I think it's important that. You know, especially in the South, I feel like a lot of, a lot, you would hear from a lot of Christians, I think, that if you really believe in God, you can't have a mental illness. Uh, You know, I've felt that kind of judgment before myself, like, you know, it there's something wrong with your faith if you're struggling, and I don't think that's true. I think no matter what we believe in, who we are, what background we're coming from, we can struggle, and I don't think there's anything to be ashamed in about that. And I think men really struggle with that embarrassed feeling, and so whether it's a man or a woman or um, you know anybody out there, if if you're dealing with any kind of health problem but but mental illness surely don't feel like you're alone don't feel like you can't talk about it don't be ashamed you you can't bury it it will not go away you have to do something about it and being able to talk to somebody is the way to start and it was for me i mean i was lucky that i was able to talk with my wife and with my mother eventually with a doctor you know i, I kind of starting to open up gradually. And then when I started to share my story more publicly, other people started talking to me. I now have a couple of men that from time to time, we check in with each other on Facebook and I just want to know how they're doing. I think they want to know how I'm doing. So it's just talking a little bit sparked this big treeing out of talking with a lot more people. Now people know what I've been going through. Um, Maybe I'm in a better place, but at the same time, that's always part of who I am. And if I had never talked about that, none of that would have ever come out. And who knows what condition I would be in. So if you're dealing with anything, just being willing to talk about it. And if you don't know somebody personally, there are counseling lines out there, um, the suicide hotline, things like that. So there's always somewhere to go to talk
0: absolutely so reach out for help and don't wait 30 years that is a
1: great piece of advice exactly (laughs)
0: matthew i want to thank you um thank you for the writing you've done thank you for sharing your story with others i know you're helping people immensely and uh, and thank you for taking the time to be on the depression files and make sure you stay healthy it means much thank you for listening to the depression files If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.